Thank you. Uh, to set the tone for the uh, meeting, I will read an extract from chapter one, Bill's story, page thir pages 13 and 14. Um, I, I was to test my, new, my thinking by the, by the new God consciousness within. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. Never was I to pray for myself, except as my request bore on my usefulness to others. Then only might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. My friend promised when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my creator, that I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. Belief in the power of God, plus enough willingness, honesty and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were the essential requirements. And um, the topic of tonight's meeting is working step 10 with a sponsee. And Tim will share anything between 30 and 45 minutes on the topic, after which the floor will be opened for questions rather than the typical sharing. And with that, I will now hand over to Tim. Thank you, everyone. Can you hear me, Alistair? Good, thanks. So step 10 is slightly problematical because if you look at uh, page 59 uh, or the wall scrolls, you've got 10, continue to take personal inventory. And when we were, prompt, when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. And you've got the 12 and 12, which has got its own take on step 12, on step 10 rather, which I'm not going to go into. And then you've got what happens in, in AA in general. Um, you'll usually hear people sharing, well, I did a step 10 last night. And what they did is they did a very sort of long written analysis of some emotional turmoil. That's what it usually means. Um, like a mini step four or something at night. And uh, I think it's important, I've said it before, it's important to remember with any of the steps that the, uh, this little summary on page 59 is just that. It's simply an aid memoir for what the step contains. It's not a set of instructions for how to do the step. And as someone rightly said, that if you do the steps off the wall, uh, uh, if you do the program off the wall, you'll have an off the wall program. So if you try to do, and people do that, they try to divine what a step is, just looking at that saying, well, that's all I need. I don't need anything else. Um, so you get these complex analyses of shortcomings versus defects of character. Uh, and people are saying it's as though people are just going on what it says in step six and seven on the wall or on page 59. And there's no other information available. So we've just got to divine it from the words. And of course, that won't do. It's, it's like if you've got a recipe book and in, in the recipe book, it says it's got sort of page 17, quiche Lorraine. Uh, page 18, Black Forest Gatto. You might have something of an idea of what the recipe is, but that falls very far short of knowing how to make a quiche Lorraine or a Black Forest Gatto. And you wouldn't want to try and make up the recipe based on your sort of general knowledge of, of, of what a quiche Lorraine from Tesco's is like. Well, particularly the quiche Lorraine from Tesco's. Um, let alone the Black Forest Gatto. Don't get me going on British versions of French cooking. But anyway, um, 
that's possibly a digression, although not necessarily. So, um, uh, what does step 10 mean in practice? Well, I it's very clear that, well, first of all, if you've done a step four, that's not it for inventory for the rest of your life. We're going to have to do something. And as far as actual instructions in the book for step uh, 10 are concerned, they're actually contained in step 10 proper, we'll call it, pages 84 to 85. And then there is an implementation of the idea of step 10, continue to take personal inventory and in so-called nightly review when we retire at night on page 86. And then there's the principle of step 12, which says we practice these principles, which principles, the above principles in the preceding 11 steps in all our affairs. In other words, we continue to practice all of the steps as and when needed when the situation arises. So whatever tools are available, uh, you use them as needed. So the question, you know, if one does an in-depth inventory, either of one's whole life on a particular area, uh, uh, or either on your whole life or on a particular area, uh, you know, are you doing another step four? Are you doing step 10? I think the answer is yes. You're doing step 10 in the form of uh, using the step four instructions as your method of doing it. But the step you're actually practicing is step 10, but it's employing step four methods. So you've really got three ways of doing inventory in AA. There's page 84 to 85, which I'll come to. There's the step 11 review, and there's the um, the step four method. And uh, I don't know about your sponsees, but mine occasionally have a tiny little tendency to be a little bit self-absorbed. Um, uh, and I have a tiny little tendency to, to be a little bit self-absorbed at times. So I have to be very careful with inventory that it doesn't become socially acceptable form of self-obsession. So the first principle I introduce with people is, yes, you're going to need to continue to take inventory. But what we want to do, it's like with it's like if you've got a bacterial infection, uh, they first of all give you the standard uh, antibiotic. And if that doesn't work, they'll escalate to a more potent one. And if you really if you're really struggling, they'll go to the special cupboard and get the very, very special antibiotic, which they don't want to release you know, uh, uh, and have create uh, resistant bacteria. So that it's under very controlled conditions that they will administer certain bacteria and I think uh, certain uh, antibiotics. And so I think it's the same with the continuing to take personal inventory. I think one should uh, adopt the step 10 practice per the big book very, very frequently. The nightly review with a lightness of touch, but we'll come to that when we do step 11. And the step four style inventory, either resentment inventory, the uh, page 67 questions, the fear inventory, the sex inventory, and the construction of a sane and sound ideal only infrequently. Uh, so it's in that sort of ascending order uh, of 
severity. So not immediately to leap to doing a daily step four. I've met people who have done that, drives them completely mad. Every day they sit down, do half an hour of very complex written analysis, and they find themselves writing the same things over and over and over. So sometimes you have to deprogram people from that uh, obsessive compulsive sort of nitpicking at oneself. Um, and it's like these, uh, you know, people sometimes obsessive compulsive disorder, I'm told can manifest it in, in sort of scratching the same piece of skin again and again and again until it becomes uh, sort of red and raw. Maybe Claire can enlighten us on whether that's an accurate portrayal of that particular symptom, not because she suffers it from herself. I think she may have some professional <laughs> insight into that. But you know what I mean? I think inventory can become like that. So you need to let people off the hook, really in a sense. And then let's go to 84. So what does it actually say? This thought brings us to step 10, which suggests we can take, we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. So this is giving us a general guide to what step 10 is about. And if you want an image, you're adjusting the steering wheel. So you're not getting out of the car, you're not taking the, the car to the garage every five minutes, you're adjusting the steering wheel as you go along. But that's not a, an actual instruction, it's just a sort of concept of, of what the step involves. We vigorously commenced this way of living as we cleaned up the past. So to me, this is uh, the, the point at which we start to clean up the past is in step four. So I give people the principles of 10, 11, and 12 as soon as they start step four. In other words, as soon as they take step three, their life goes on two tracks. There's the overall arc of four through nine, and then there's the daily arc of 10, 11, and 12. We've entered the world of the spirit, where our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. Now that's again, just a general uh, description of what we're undertaking here. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for a lifetime. Uh, so uh, again, this is step 10. Sometimes people say I've completed the steps and I'm, I think you complete the first nine steps, but I'm not sure you can complete um, the last three. Uh, I, <laughs> acquaintance of mine in AA many years ago talked about how she was sober you know, a fair amount of 13, 14 years, very involved in intergroup. And she said how she'd got to the end of the steps with her sponsor and they got a little cake and they put a candle on the cake and they lit the candle and they blew it out. I don't know what significance this had. And she said to mark the fact that we completed the steps. And within about two years, we never saw her again. So she, 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 she so completed them, she left AA. Now, you don't want to do that. You don't want to think you've completed the steps with or without a candle. Um, you know, I'm afraid you're sort of rather locked into this. Um, this is why in step three, you get people to think very carefully before they take step three. Uh, I, I, do you want to do this for the rest of your life? And now you only have to swallow it a day at a time. It's like with laundry or, you know, do you commit to doing laundry for the rest of your life? Do you commit to brushing your teeth for the rest of your life? Yes, but you don't have to pre-brush your teeth for the next 60 years. You just have to commit to the daily actions. Um, now, here it actually begins to get into instructions. So continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment and fear. 
Uh, now, these are the only four that it asks us to look for. But very clearly, uh, the spirit of this is to be looking out for any defect of character. It can't possibly be their intention um, to uh, uh, simply watch for these. But, you know, if, if you've got a problem, I don't know, with sort of punching people in the face or something, well, don't worry about that. It's not on the list of four. So you can do that. You can go to, to, to then quick save even exists anymore, but you can go to Lidl and punch people in the queue if you want, because that's all right. It's not on the list, so you're fine. We must have none of that legalism. So everything falls under those categories. What I get people to look for is to consider resentment in this context to be any upset, any emotional upset or negative reaction to the present or the past, fancied or real. So a lot of people get very upset about things which aren't really there. Now, the, the upset is real. Well, I said, I thought, I've told this story before. I said to Jonathan once about, about something, but it's my lived experience. He said, yes, but that doesn't mean it's real. So uh, you, you watch out for any form of upset about the past or the present, that's resentment. Any form of upset about the future, that's fear. Dishonesty, you've got, uh, I think, four basic types of dishonesty, concealment, distortion, fabrication and uh, uh, underhand behavior, scheming. So, uh, and those four are quite distinct. So the first three are about representations of the truth. You're either concealing the truth to yourself or to others, you're distorting it or you're making up something which isn't there. The fourth one is to do with honest dealings, I think. And this comes under various headings that there can be active scheming and plotting to get one over on someone else. But also manipulation falls under this category. Now, the difficulty here is is with politeness. So politeness is a form of deceit and manipulation. Uh, so when you say. You know, I'd be terribly pleased if, if, if you could find a moment to do dot, dot, dot. It's, it's, it's not strictly honest. It's a manipulative way. Or I'd be so grateful if you did so and so. It's a manipulation, but it's a socially acceptable one, which is part of the culture that to exhibit et so etiquette and politeness require a certain amount of effectively manipulation, deception about your true intent and your true feelings about a situation. We're not talking about that. We're talking about... Um, something which crosses the line uh, in terms of manipulation or scheming or de deception of another person. Uh, and selfishness is a very, very big bag indeed, which hold, which contains everything else. So every other defect of character is essentially a form of selfishness, putting self, putting oneself in form of, uh, ahead of someone else. The two things I would add to this list, which are, I mean, they are comprised within it one way or another, but particular mental habits to watch out for um, are fantasy and nostalgia. You can slot them in, whether you slot them under dishonesty or selfishness, it doesn't really matter. But I find it can be very helpful to keep a particular 
eye out for those. And to also recognize that, that these come in sometimes unrecognized forms. So, um, um, say fear can come in the form of fretting and worrying and brooding. Um, uh, what else? Uh, selfishness can come in the form of all of the plots and schemes to fix, change and control another person. Plan, scheme, plot, fix, change, control. Um, uh, resentment can come in the form of, of, of grumbling and, and moaning and griping and criticizing and judging and all of those things. So really one must be watching out for the full range of everything one is capable of. Now, the question is, uh, there's an important principle here to convey. Um, I've had sponsees object, understandably, to steps 10 and 11, particularly the review part of 10, 10 and 11, or, or 10 or 11 rather, the nightly review. Uh, sorry, I'm a bit tired this evening, so I'm slightly all over the place. Um, people object to those steps on the basis that, well, we're being hard on ourselves, being very, very hard on ourselves. And one of my people will say, one of my character defects is beating myself up. And another one is perfectionism. And aren't I, I'm just, I'm not going to do this because it's just beating myself up and it's just being perfectionistic. If your arm was broken, you wouldn't say, well, I'm not, I don't want to seek perfect restoration of the motor function in my left arm because that's just being perfectionistic. So I shall put up with a broken arm. Uh, one wouldn't do that. And also one wouldn't, it, it, if you went to doctors and you had a, a um, you, had, you had an x-ray done, the, the uh, doctor said, well, you've got a fracture of, of the, I don't know, the, the, the distal epiphysis of your ulna. You wouldn't say, you're, be you're being really hard on me. You're beating me up. No, the doctor's just diagnosed what's wrong with you. Do you want to get it fixed or don't you? Now, and this is relevant here, is when you're watching, you are the watcher. You are not the thing that you're watching. You are watching for these characteristics cropping up where in your belief, your, your beliefs, your thinking, your behavior. So what you're looking at is the tools that you're using for living. And who wouldn't want better tools? Who, who wouldn't want to wear better clothes? Who wouldn't want to, to eat better food? So this is the way I was explaining it is, is you're keeping an eye on this stuff so that your life will improve. These are not defects of yours in that they're not, they're not you, they're what you're carrying around and don't want to be. So it's always in your interest to spot these. But to treat the faculty of watching uh, as being like one of those uh, antivirus programs, which is constantly running in the background, scanning this and scanning that. But if, it, if you if you're at least if your computer is powerful enough it doesn't slow down the running of your computer and the performance of your daily tasks you're still able to do everything that without any compromise whatsoever so it only flags up a problem if there is one you're not constantly obsessed with yourself so it, it's developing the ability 
is developing a sense of mindfulness towards one's own uh, beliefs, thinking and behaviour, particularly the thinking as it proceeds in real time. Um, when these crop up, we analyse them at great. Oh, no, it doesn't say that. It says we ask God at once to remove them. Because this is, of course, what everyone does. <laughs> um, people say, I need to talk to you about my resentment. And you're like, how do you know? Now, I know you've got one. How do you know you need to talk about the resentment? Maybe you just need to ask God to remove it or do the prayers on page 67 or, you know, I don't know, go and eat a cake or something. I, but, but just drop it. Just drop it. I'm sure you've seen the Bob Newhart sketch. Stop it. If you haven't seen the Bob Newhart sketch, stop it. Go and watch it immediately after this. Get a YouTube Bob Newhart, N-E-W-H-A-R-T, and stop it. So we've already proved in step four that resentment is futile and fatal. We've already proved that fear is nonsense created out of the illusion that we are physical beings. So we don't need to reanalyze them. There's a caveat later on, I'll come to that. So basically, what we want to do is immediately adjust back to the present, back to awareness of the presence of God, back to the task at hand. So when it says now, it does say we just discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. Now, we discuss them with someone immediately. The caveat, if you have a novel situation which requires negotiation, then you might need to discuss it with someone else. If you've got a practical course of action that you're uncertain of in terms of how to fix something, then of course you have to discuss it with someone else. But I found even in my early years, the need, the actual need to do this was infrequent. Uh, I did need to do daily debriefing with friends and I still do, but uh, I only call people during the day or interrupt them with a rapid fire troubleshooting round of, right, this is the situation. How should I look at it? What should I do? Then immediately get back to uh, the task at hand. Um, the last clause of that phrase, of that sentence, we discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. There is ambiguity, unfortunately. The ambiguity is the scope of the conditional clause. So if we have harmed anyone, does that govern just we make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone or we discuss and make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone? I, I take the first one. So we discuss anything of importance with someone, uh, but the making amends quickly is uh, obviously only if we have harmed someone. So we do get to discuss things even if we haven't harmed someone. So harming someone is not the only condition for discussion. Um, then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. Uh, now, sometimes uh, this operates at two levels. The first level at which this operates is sometimes I fall into some complacency of some description and I just uh, I'm just not do I'm not going to enough meetings I'm not talking to enough people I'm not making enough effort with my service there, there's always little extra bits of service you can do if you put your mind to it sometimes the turning of thoughts uh means uh 
turning your thoughts to the, the, the task at hand from which someone will benefit. So you repurpose the task at hand as being something for the benefit of the person that it's ultimately for. Or sometimes what you can do, and this is a very good trick, uh, whatever you're going through, uh, imagine when you're next at a meeting, how you'll share about how you're currently using the program to address this situation and turn it round with God's help. So you're immediately repurposing the very cause of the upset or whatever it is to being uh, something that you can use to help other people. And so this comes straight from the big book where it talks about capitalizing. When trouble comes, we capitalize it, uh, using it as an opportunity to demonstrate God's omnipotence. And you can activate that straight away. I remember I, I, I did that when... Um, you know, so when I don't know the word disaster or catastrophe, when very serious events have occurred, particularly in my family, to immediately lock, you know, you lock on to that method and say, right, this is the test. It was always coming. I'm going to use this as a test of can I remember and apply the program and recall as much as possible of what is going on that I can then use this in meetings to demonstrate how the program works. Completely changes your attitude to the crisis situation. Now, the next passage is strictly a set of promises. What I encourage people to do, um, there are a couple of things here that I can use, I can turn them into instructions. So that one tries to make the most out of this, we've ceased fighting anything or anyone. And to practice using this as a corrective measure, who in my life am I currently in conflict with? What would happen if I stopped fighting? And fighting can come in all sorts of forms. It can come in the form of arguing, answering back, um, fixed change control. It can come in the form of, uh, uh, repeated requests when one request would do like if you request something once and the person doesn't do it they have you know when because i haven't been heard no they've heard you they just don't they're just not going to do it and so you don't so fighting can take all sorts of different forms just to leave things be um other good examples of how you can encourage people to do this is uh someone <laughs> Someone, I don't know where this tape is going, but well, I'm just going to go for it. Someone called me a few, I don't know, a couple of years ago about their home group. And they said the group consciences were going on for like two hours and they had a backlog, having a group conscience once or twice a month. And they had a backlog of about four months of suggestions from people about how to change the group. And ceasing fighting can be, just go to your home group, share for three minutes and keep your mouth shut in business meetings and group conscience meetings. There's nothing worse than a group where you've got sort of 47 people trying to basically fight the reality of what the group is and trying to change it the whole time. So just to leave as many things be as possible, leave as many people be as possible, reserve, uh, keep your powder dry and, uh, uh, pick your battles. Uh, what else can we look at here? Um, we feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. I have mentally 
a sort of space I can go to, which is a place of complete neutrality, in which I'm safe and protected. And I encourage people to visualize this themselves, particularly in the minutes before going to sleep, imagining that like your, your being, your spirit, your aura, whatever you want to call it, traveling to this place, which is real reality, with this realm being like a shadow land or a stage and the other place being real reality where everything is neutral where everything is safe where you're protected and i'm in a position now because i've done this such a lot i can just go like that and be there and i'm fine uh, it's a very helpful thing to foster so this stuff will happen automatically but it doesn't hurt to give it a helping hand uh, so there's no there's no conflict between turning everything over to god and doing your bit and the principle here is god will do for you what you can't do for yourself but god won't do for you what you can do for yourself uh, it is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels um uh, i think it's well said that the laurels are the sense of achievement from having completed the first nine steps. Sometimes people say they're resting on their laurels. Now, unless you finish the first nine steps, it ain't your laurels you're resting on. It's something else. You might want, I don't want to alarm you, but you might want to just stand up and see what you're sitting in. Because <laughs> it, it ain't laurels. Um, we're headed for trouble if we do for alcohol is a subtle foe. We're not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And now it's so that's, that's all lovely, blah, blah. Now we have the instructions. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. I get an exercise I get people to do. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but it won't hurt to mention it again because we've all got goldfish brains. Um, uh, the book talks about a sane and sound ideal on page 69 as a problem solving tool. Here it talks about the vision of God's will. Uh, in the 12 and 12 and step 11, it talks about if an architect is going to build a building, he has to visualize it first. Otherwise, nothing is going to get built. And on page 83, it talks about there is a long period of reconstruction ahead. And of course, reconstruction can't take place without a vision. Now, I think there's a balance here uh, between, on one hand, asking God what to do in the moment and being flexible and adaptable and all of those things. But I think it's also important when I get to the end of a step nine process with people, I get them to do something that I do whenever I'm in trouble in an area is to have a sane and sound ideal straight vision of God's will for, for me in that area. So those are beliefs, thinking patterns and behavior patterns, which act as corrective measures to current problems. So that I've got a sense of what I'm trying to do. So one of the things I've had with sponsorship, which I'm gradually getting better at, is, is I'm, I'm a little more patient than I used to be. And so when the phone is ringing, when I sit ringing, uh, there, there the, the vision, of the, the, the same as sound I'm the vision of God's will is to, to, to be patient, to try to sit down rather than pace, uh, all sorts of other little tricks to make sure that I'm responding in, a, in as measured a way as I can 
master on the day in question. So, so I'm not just going into think situations blindly. I'm going in with a sense of what I should be. Now, the progress towards those sane and sound ideals, if you're anything like me, is painfully and embarrassingly slow, but it's better than nothing. And uh, it's I, I don't know what the alternative is other than to have that vision of God's will. How can I best serve thee? Thy will not mine be done. That's a very powerful restorative for a situation where I give this to people, that line, as a restorative when they're in a situation involving other people, particularly work, family, home group, where they're all in a tizzy and all mentally separated from anyone, everyone around them is stuck in their own head. Because I did this, I remember it's a family situation. In my family, situations throw us together in the same room on occasion, very infrequently. But when they do, none of us know what to say to each other. And um, we can just about put names to faces, but it's awkward, it's embarrassing. People make the most appalling small talk. I mean, small talk that, that pe people have to leave the room. They're so embarrassed about how trivial and unreal it is. I remember a, a particular canard going on for about 20 minutes uh, one year about whether or not we have they have Christmas crackers in France. And someone actually could not stand. They had to leave the room because they were going to explode. And I, uh, these situations are so tense. I just say no now. I just don't go. It's, everything's much happier. Uh, but in situations like that, I would, as soon as I say, God, how can I best serve thee? Thy will not mine be done. I can start to contribute more constructively and humanly to the situation. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. So I, I think uh, step 10 is a game of two halves. Uh, you're on one hand spotting all the stuff you shouldn't be doing, particularly with your mind. People get quite good at behaviour after a while in AA, but the mind seems to be the thing which takes the longest time to catch up. Uh, so on one hand, on page 84, you're spotting all the problems. And it, in step 10 on page 85, you're saying, well, what's the solution? The solution is to be constantly thinking, what can I constructively contribute to this situation? We can exercise our willpower along this line. All we wish is the proper use of the will. So this resolves the question of if I let go, does that mean I sit there like a potato? No, you, you, you engage vigorously in the world. And there's a line earlier on that we're intelligent agents uh, of God's ever advancing creation. So it, it doesn't mean that one's not vigorously active. It's just the power, the direction for the vigorous activity and the power comes from God rather than from selfish demands. And uh, the next bit is a bit of blah, blah. It's very nice blah, blah, but it is by no instructions in it. But much has already been said about receiving strength, inspiration and direction from him who has all knowledge and power. Um, so uh, when people have a, uh, a problematical conception of God, I say just rip, write down what you think your concept of God is. Now I tell them to rip up the piece of paper and say, go with this. So who is God? God is that which has all knowledge and power and is the source of strength, inspiration, direction. Go with that for five years, 10 years, and then come back and see how that works. It's a great definition of the higher power. What is God? The sort that the, the, the 
repository of all knowledge and all power. What do you get from God's strength, inspiration, and direction? And you can turn it into a prayer. Oh, you who have all knowledge and power, please give me strength, inspiration, and direction. And that's not a bad prayer. And the next bit, you have to caution people. If we've carefully followed directions, we've begun to sense the flow of his spirit into us. To some extent, we have become God conscious. Uh, we have begun to develop this vital sixth sense. Now, what some people understand this to mean is that you sort of have some paranormal experience. And if you're not having a paranormal experience with the presence of the actual creator of the universe in your living room with you or inside you, then if you don't have that experience, well, I'm obviously doing something wrong. And uh, there are some lovely people in AA who wax very lyrical about very conscious experiences of God. Now it's very, very good, but I, I don't know if what they're experiencing is that or if it's something else. It, maybe I'm experiencing it, but just terming it very differently. As I mentioned before, sometimes you leave the house in the morning thing and you realize, oh, I'm having a nice day. Sun shining, walking, oh, there's a squirrel over there, that's nice. I'm just having a nice time. Other people might characterize that as feeling the presence of God, whereas I think of it as seeing a squirrel and thinking that's nice. Could be the same, could be the exactly the same actual experience, but which has been construed and communicated in a different way. So just because the sponsee doesn't feel the spirit of God, the the, the Holy Spirit moving within him. Um, doesn't mean something has gone wrong. And in fact, if they do, it could be a sign of a mental health issue, which indeed sometimes it is. So I had someone once who um, uh, started to experience uh, God very in a very kind of real and tangible way. And um, the the vision started to become sexualized, which I don't think is helpful. I don't think that's part of the program. Now, if that happens, you might want to tone down the step 11 and just keep it super practical. Um, so you've got to be slightly careful with that. Now, the question is, well, what does it mean? Uh, it means that you are more likely than otherwise to remember to call your mother you realize you start to realize two days before the laundry tablets run out that you need to go and buy some new ones rather than only realizing once they've run out. It's remembering to do the things you said you were going to do. It's it's saying something particularly acidic and for the first time in your life realizing, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I'm going to apologize right now. So you think that set the flow of god's spirit into you is some sort of uplifting you know like being lifted on angel wings very often it's a sudden and new sense of responsibility and guilt for things undone that's how you know that god is your your when you now feel guilty for things which are wrong which you wouldn't have batted an eyelash eyelid what do you bat eyelids eyelashes whatever that you wouldn't have batted an eyelid at six months ago but suddenly you're wet you narrow you're 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 now aware of your effect on other people i think that it's awareness of reality that's what happens and generally having better ideas than you did before so i think that's probably all i've got on step 10 so alistair do you want to uh, turn it over for questions. Thank you very much, Tim. Yeah, and with that, um, 
I'll open up the meeting for um, for questions, which can be done by the raised hand function in Zoom, uh, or you can message me through the chat function and I can ask Tim directly. If all else fails, please just wave your hand at the camera and I will try to come to you. Uh, and we'll try to close uh, on the hour mark. Uh, but sometimes we run a bit over. Uh, I'll open it up for, uh, for questions. Seamus. Hi, am I unmuted? Yes. Okay. Um, thank you. Thank you, Tim. Um, I, I've got uh, two questions, actually. One is kind of like um, uh, one I baked earlier, so to speak. Uh, it was on my mind before this session. And, and what I'm going to ask right now is, is more of a technical nature. Um, does the... Um, the pre-baked question relates more to the, the 12 and 12. I, I won't ask that unless, unless we have time. But the, um, the technical question is, um, is to do with the big four. So we've got to continue to watch for uh, selfishness, uh, dishonesty, resentment, and, and fear. I've always found a very helpful list. You're trying to simplify people's approach to, to step four. You know, look, look no further. The, these are the big ones. But there is something a bit odd about it, which I ne never really understood, never really dared to articulate my uncertainty about it, which is that the, the list is in a different order from what we had in um, step four, where we're told that resentment is the number one offender and lying behind that is selfishness, dishonesty, self-seeking and fear. So that's a, that's a different list. And then, and then again, if you go back to step three, you've got some um, first uh, selfishness, um, which is defined as being, I lost the place. Um, yeah, um, to do with uh, self-centeredness, resentments, and self-pity, and then selfishness, <laughs> uh, being driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. Now, I, I can almost hear the answer ringing in my ears that you know th these are these are concepts which are inevitably fuzzy at the edges, you know, overlapping. They don't lend themselves to, to, to crisp definition. Um, but I have to say, there's certainly been times in my own recovery and when I've been trying to help other people, perhaps, when I'd have given my eye teeth for a Venn diagram, um, if the big book had been written by the Harvard, Harvard Business School, at some point it would have been a, a Venn diagram showing how these, how these concepts um, overlap and kind of interlock with each other. Um, so that's my question, really. Uh, do you, is there any significance at, at all to be attached to the, the varying orders? And just one, one further point on that. When you were talking about dishonesty, you didn't specifically mention self-delusion. And I've always thought that self-delusion seems to be the source of the problem more than almost anything else um, in the people that I, I find myself dealing with. It's the stories they tell themselves, which are very often you know, completely wrong. When you point that out, it's like, oh, I, I hadn't realised that, you know, sort of end the problem. So I'll stop there. Okay, so there are lots of questions there. So uh, just in the order that I remember them, this is like the generation game with the conveyor belt. Um, <laughs> if any of you are old enough to remember that or British enough to remember that. Uh, so, the yeah, so, so 
those forms of dishonesty, uh, uh, you've got concealment, distortion, fabrication. Those can be towards oneself or towards other people. So as equal opportunities. But the, the same scheme applies to both concealment, distortion or fabrication. Uh, so I think that covers that one. Um, with the order, I'd be extremely hesitant to read an order into them without further evidence. Uh, there, there, is what, there are some places where there are extraordinary coincidences with order. I'll give you one. Uh, it talks about when the spiritual condition clears up. Let me just get the exact quotation. I want to get the exact quotation out. Um, on page 64, where is it? When the spiritual malady is overcome, so spiritual, we straighten out mentally, mentally and physically, physically, spiritually, mentally, physically, mind, uh, spirit, mind, body. So you get spiritually straight first and your mind clears up, then your, your circumstances clear up third. And it echoes that later on the big book that spiritual, the spiritual comes first, the material comes second. And in step 11 on page 86, when you ask God, what you ask God for is inspiration, an intuitive thought or a decision, which mirror those three levels of spirit, mind, body in that specific order. So there are occasional coincidences there. I've not discerned any particular significance to the ordering of uh, resentment, fear, selfishness and dishonesty. There, there, is the, there are those little quartets which appear all the way through the big book. Another one is patient, tolerant, kind and loving. And that occurs with some variation throughout the book. The orders, the order changes. One of the words changes at a particular point. So... Um, I'm hesitant to read too much into it. When Bill wants to point something out, he'll probably he'll usually do it overtly. Those other little coincidences, I suspect, are um, uh, inadvertent manifestations of his underlying design rather than treasures which are hidden in the style of the Da Vinci Code. Um, because people read all sorts of stuff into the big book as though there's buried treasure which has been left there on purpose. And Bill is you know, giggling behind his hands, trying to work out which smart Alec is gonna is going to, to, to join the dots and you know solve the riddle. I don't think it's riddles. Uh, now with selfishness, um, you've got you've got three big places where it gets described. The first one is that little passage on 61 where it talks about let's well let's get the passage where is it um or 62 rather selfishness self-centeredness and i mean there it's presenting them as as uh, effective synonyms that being one thing it doesn't say those it says that we think is the root of our troubles. Earlier on, it gives self-centered and egocentric as synonyms. Uh, by the way, the way Bill uses dashes is to say the thing before the dash is 
the same as the thing after the dash or the thing after the dash is entailed by the thing before the dash. So in step one, powerlessness entails our manageability. They're not two unrelated motions. One entails the other. And because that's just how Bill uses dashes. So he's doing exactly the same there. Selfishness, self-centeredness. And then it's got these other, it, then it's got the subdivisions of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, self-pity. So you've got that little cluster there. You've got the page 67 questions, which very clearly overlap. So on page 67, when you say, what are my mistakes? If you accurately answer, what are all of my mistakes? You'll capture everything. This is self-seeking, all the fear, all the dishonesty, all the faults, all the wrongs because all of those things are by definition mistakes. So those are deliberately overlapping terms. And then you've got a, a completely different usage here on page uh, 84 with um, selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear being a little quartet, which I think is supposed to capture the full gamut of human ills. So I think selfishness here, since it's supposed to be, it must be terribly broad, really covers everything to do with self, all, all of those little self-aggrandisement, self-abasement, self-this, self-delusion, self all of the forms of self come under there. It's meant, I, I, use, I, well, I use it at any rate in a, in a much narrower way on page 67 to really hone in. So self-seeking is on page 67 is what am I after? Um, selfishness is where I'm putting my interests ahead of other people's and what I get people to do I think this is very helpful put yourself in the shoes of the other person in the situation ask what interests of mine being the other person are being compromised by the sponsee's behavior so so in the strict sense I would call selfishness where I put myself illegitimately ahead of other people uh, but selfishness here is a much broader term which aims to capture everything. Does that cover, I think that covers all your points, Seamus. Yes, yes, thanks. I was much more comprehensive than I was daring to hope, actually. Thanks, thanks very much, Tim. Yeah, that's great. And what was the techie question on the 12 and 12? Ah, yes. Um, uh, it's the spiritual axiom. Uh, I, I had to do a talk about this and it got me thinking about the spiritual axiom. It's a spiritual axiom that every time we are disturbed, there is something the matter with us. Yeah. And I got to thinking about this and I thought about what about dead mothers? So your mother dies and you're upset or disturbed. Um, does that really, uh, is that really what we're trying to say or, or is it not? Not because whenever I look at the big book, I cannot actually get to the spiritual axiom the closest i can get is um sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation but we invariably find that at some time in the past we've made decisions based on self which later placed us in a position to be hurt um so i'm not sure about the spiritual axiom and it is is grief a form of um disturbance which is you know to some extent um a matter of a matter of choice. I mean, many great religions have um, practices around grief that suggests that it's something to be, um, it, well, if not welcomed, certainly accommodated, um, rather than, shall we say, got rid of. Do you see where I'm? What I'm? Yeah, trusting? absolutely. Yeah. So it's a, it's a it's a well established question, um, and it's a good one. It's a helpful one. Um, Let's 
make, I'm going to make a three-way distinction. There are types of emotion that I would refer to as uh, notifications. So fear is a notification that my mind has spotted a threat. That's the nature of fear. Uh, resentment is a notification from, or, or a, a little burst of anger, not resentment, a little burst of anger. So fear in the moment, when a fear hits you, it's, it's a little notification that there is a threat. When anger hits me, it's a little notification that something does not match the blueprint for how things should be. Guilt is a notification that my conduct doesn't match the blueprint for what my conduct should be. So you've got three basic notifications, uh, anger, fear, and uh, guilt. Um, uh, and also as a subset of guilt, there is shame, which is a sense that I in my being am not as the blueprint would stipulate. Now, the thing about these emotions, I, ooh, I don't think, I, I'm skeptical about calling them emotions even. I liken them to lights on the dashboard of the car. Either they're on or they're off. They have no color, they have no flavor, they are dull. I don't know about your rage, but when I'm raging, it doesn't matter what I'm raging about, the feeling is the same. When I'm frightened, the whether I'm frightened of uh, <laughs> something ridiculous and trivial or something um, world-churning, the feeling is the same. They're not really emotions. And, and Rabbi Manus Friedman said a very extraordinary thing in one of his talks. He's very in Manus Friedman. He's very interesting because almost everything he says is entirely unexpected. Some of his stuff is is really for, you know, for family only, as it were. You know, if, unless you're Orthodox and Jewish, it won't be of any relevance whatsoever because he addresses specifically matters within that domain but lots of his stuff is of universal application and one's got to be slightly careful what one's listening to but some stuff is completely impenetrable um, but he said that anger is not an emotion it's a barrier between you and the other person which prevents you from feeling anything real and i think there's something to that so on one hand we've got these notification style emotions i'm using emotions in inverted commas so we've got these notifications on the other hand you know it depends what music you listen to some music is very monochrome emotionally there's a lot of excitement but there's not a lot going on emotionally but if you listen to music which has got a lot going on emotionally so i don't know mozart's um the 40th or the 40, 41st symphony um uh, any Beethoven piano sonata has got a huge amount going on emotionally. If you sit, if you really listen and listen a few times in the space of half an hour, you will have a thousand emotions, none of which are remotely describable. That's emotion. 
or when you spend an afternoon with someone and you have this and you're genuinely with them you have this kaleidoscope of emotions the same as when you're with small children or animals or with nature kaleidoscope of emotions all of which defy description there's a categorical difference between uh, a fire alarm and a symphony orchestra playing and that's the difference between on one hand anger fear guilt shame and on the other hand all of the emotions of life now onto this so those are two those are two types the third type is is disturbance and disturbance is it's to do with a state where of resistance of reality where i'm resisting reality in some way and it activates all sorts of, as it were, subroutines or subsystems of fixed change control, plot, plan, scheme, uh, fret, brood, worry, moan, whine, gripe. And all now there are flavors within those, because that's the superstructure built on top of the, the alarm comes in and the department gets activated. And all of the darkness, the interesting darkness of Coen Brothers films resides in that disturbance realm and it is interesting it's not as interesting as beethoven but it isn't it is interesting uh it's not as interesting as mozart so what it's talking about is when i'm disturbed when i'm resisting reality the problem is me not reality now when you come to there i think there are two there are two types of event which are of interest here the first one when in a healthy person let's say you are racing for a train and it's cancelled you might have the emotion of disappointment you might have the emotion of anger you might have all sorts of different emotions in a healthy person they'll pass straight through you and then you resolve what to do and then you get on with your day and there might be a little residue left behind um if, if you're at a, ever at a train station and you see or, or an airport and you see a, something which is cancelled and you watch different people's reactions and some people couldn't give a shit. They're just reading their book like Honey Badger doesn't give a damn. Other people immediately start storming up to the desk and they transport themselves into the state of disturbance and stay stuck there. So that state of disturbance is a state where the fire alarm has gone off. Everyone else has turned the fire alarm off and has got on with their day. Whereas the disturbed person is sitting, shouting at the fire alarm rather than turning it off. And that's your fundamental difference. When you come to grief, grief is, is the, people always go to the, the most difficult example. And C.S. Lewis says, if, you, if you're struggling with a theological or philosophical question, it's usually best to start with the most banal of incidents and gradually progress towards the most extreme. So if you're learning how to forgive, you want to forgive Barbara, who does the flowers in the church down the road, who, who you can't stand because her teeth clack when she's eating. Start with, start with something like that rather than the Nazis. Don't try and forgive the Nazis first. Put them maybe a little bit further down the list. It's like when people are questioning about God, you know, well, what about Syria? Well, yeah, what about, 
What about geraniums? Yeah, what why are you starting why are you starting with Syria? Can't we start with something more banal? Um but with but the grief is a good example. Uh and it's it's interesting for all sorts of reasons. Uh, grief and death. Okay, let's cover both of those in the next minute or so. Um, anthropologists will report that every society responds very, very differently to death. If you look at reports of how people would deal with infant mortality in the Middle Ages, very, very different to how people respond to infant mortality now. Um, the same with death in uh, death in the community, death in villages. Uh, children in some cultures, they're born into a community and they're raised by the whole community. And there still remains a relationship between the biological mother and the child, but it's not the same relationship as in the West. So the idea that any particular emotional reaction is somehow innate there, there are the predispositions towards that, but the cultural differences are so radical. Uh, I'd be very hard pushed to say that one is necessarily condemned to a particular reaction. And the best examples of this, uh, two examples, uh, if you hang around very old people in AA, you'll see a lot of them die of cancer mostly because of smoking. It's usually lung cancer or pancreatic cancer or liver cancer. It seems to be the things that, that, pe that, that get people. And you meet people who, have, I've met a number of people over the years who've died in AA of, of, of very, and pancreatic cancer in particular is a very, very difficult one for various reasons. And to watch people go through those experiences where one would say one is necessarily condemned to enormous amounts of emotional suffering, people to walk through those with grace and cheerfulness. And I've seen people walk through grief with grace and cheerfulness, but um, without even much resistance. So a lot of it has got to do with grief, particularly a lot of it has got to do with the preparation for it and rejigging your attachments whilst the people are still alive. And if that, if that rejigging takes place, you're gonna have a completely different experience. You're gonna have a completely different experience when the person dies. Now, when you have a very bad knock and you go into a grief process, either it can be because a person has died or because there's been a radical change. Often there is a very, very severe attachment which was created and fostered over many years. And because you've established the structure, just because, and sometimes you don't realize the structure of attachment is there until the catastrophe happens. And then you realize, and you're like, I, I, I would have liked to have known I was this attached before. Um, so I've lost my, I have no sense of smell now after COVID. Um, it's just not coming back. And uh, I wished I'd prepared for this, but I didn't. So there's a, I'm afraid you just have to go through the process. When the car stops, the momentum will mean that whatever is not nailed down will fly through the windscreen. You can't stop it on the basis you should have put a seatbelt on. So when something hits, even if there was a mistake of building an attachment, I'm afraid you have to go through the process. And it's no, you can't, it's too late to stop it because all of the events are in motion. Uh, 
but I think it's possible to walk through with sufficient preparation to walk through one's own, people walk through their own death experiences and walk through the grief of very significant losses without disturbance in the sense that it's described in the big book. So pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional was the phrase that was always given to me. And uh, it says, although a situation was not our fault, so we're not responsible for situations, but we're 100% responsible for our contribution to them. And it talks about our troubles are not of our own making, uh, are of our own making rather. Now, clearly there are events which are not of our own making, but the trouble is the disturbance about it. So it's not, I mean, I've tried to give as comprehensive an answer as I can to essentially what is a philosophical question which keeps people uh, keeps philosophers in in clover in as far as they're ever in clover for for decades. But that's the short answer, Seamus. Thanks. Thanks very much, Tim. Um, if there is, yeah, any more questions? Sorry, we were at right, five past. not being the case um i'd like to hand it, hand the meeting back to you tim uh, to to close with the serenity prayer thanks would you please help me close in the usual way god grant me the serenity oh, serenity to so accept the things i cannot change, change the courage, courage to change, change the things i can, like can and the, and the wisdom, wisdom to know the difference, know the difference. thanks tim thanks everyone thanks, thank, you. Bye -bye. thank you see you all Bye.